You're listening to Shift Talking with Sharon Levine. Join Sharon as she discusses the human experience of creating and maintaining relationships of all kinds, from friendships to family and everything in between. And now, here's Sharon. Welcome to Ship Talking, WCHL's relationship talk show. I am your host, Sharon Levine, and here at Ship Talking, we talk about all angles of all types of relationships. I mentioned last week how I would like Ship Talking to be both a place of sharing and support, but I also really want it to be a place of learning for all of us. So last week, we had Danielle Weber, who is a doctoral student studying adult relationships, talk to us about her experience as a couples counselor. But she, as a PhD student, has also very much immersed herself in the study of relationships. So she has agreed to join us again today to talk a little bit about her research. So Danielle, hello. Thanks so much again for joining us. Of course. It's great to be back. So you are currently a fifth-year clinical psychology doctoral student, and you work for Dr. Bacham's lab, couples lab. So I thought you could first just tell us a little bit about that lab, what what goes on, what does the study of relationships look like? Yeah, so really in that lab, we're trying to understand like what makes relationships thrive and what also makes them sometimes struggle. And so we do this by doing like basic research. And for those of you who are in the research world, basic research is just trying to understand like, well, what's, what are the nuts and bolts? Like what's going on in relationships? Like, can we understand more about relationships by just like, like looking at a sample of couples, looking at how they communicate, like really getting in there and seeing what's going on so we can better understand like what's going wrong for some people, what's going better for some people um, with the hope that that information then tells us uh, how we can help couples better. And so there's another part of the lab that we also study applied research, which is like, well, then how do you actually carry forth that new knowledge into how we treat couples? And so in order to have good couples therapy, we first needed to research like what makes therapy good. Um, And so now we're working a lot on like understanding how treatments can be enhanced for specific types of issues. Um, And so the lab is looking just a lot of just different types of couples. We're doing this kind of basic and more like therapy research on, including couples where one person has a major psychiatric disorder, what we call psychopathology. Um, also couples facing a lot of external stressors like societal discrimination or you know, poverty or really thinking about um, couples who undergo those types of stressors as well. So it's really like any topic you can have of interest in the couple's world um, or a good home um, in this lab. And your research specifically centers around how we experience emotion in our relationships. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about, about what that means. Of course. Um, so I think I came to this interest in thinking that Uh, Before I came to this lab, I was generally interested in how people experience emotions and how we regulate emotions. Um, But I was thinking about it. And, you know, we tend to think of emotions as a very, like, individual kind of experience. But we don't experience emotions in a vacuum. Like, if we experience emotions around a friend, around a partner, around a family member, um, they're going to probably see those emotions unless they're completely internal and they're going to have a reaction to them and how they react can then influence how we feel afterwards. So I think 
all of us in our lives have people we go to because we know when we talk to them about something we're struggling with, we feel better afterwards. And then we also have some people who might think, oh, I might stay away from them because they're not so good with this type of thing. They might actually make me feel worse. So I think intuitively, we just naturally have this sense of like, how do people make us feel better? And how do people make us feel worse sometimes? And so I was really interested in like, can we do research on this? Can we identify what it is that some people can do that makes us better and other things that might actually make us feel worse? And can we use that in some way to eventually understand, like, how can we promote that kind of good behavior in couples and maybe stay away from the times when they actually make us feel worse? So what does an experiment look like on how couples experience emotion? How do you measure or assess that? Yeah, that's a really important question because it's really hard to do. Emotions, uh, there's something that changes kind of often quickly. Um, If we're trying to understand this in a social context, you can't exactly like pause someone every few minutes as they're talking to someone and be like, how does this feel? How does that feel? Um, So we're kind of left with fewer ways that we can naturally kind of get this information. But there's um, one method of looking at emotions I've really been diving into in this lab, um, it has some real advantages to assess emotions. And this is an, it's basically an indicator of emotional arousal that's communicated in the voice. It's called fundamental frequency or F0 for short. And what F0 is, is basically we perceive it as like the pitch of someone's voice. So if you can just imagine like someone's pitch goes higher, um, that means their F0 is getting like larger in number. And what we can do is basically record a couple having a conversation and then spit that recording into an algorithm. And we have to do some fancy, you know, editing and all that stuff first. (laughs) But eventually what we get is an algorithm telling us what the F0 value is of someone's voice every quarter second, basically continuously as someone is talking, we can get this kind of trajectory of how their emotional arousal changes. Um, And this is really a way that we can look at just how distressed someone is emotionally because their pitch goes up. We, when we hear that in other people, we sense that as them getting more distressed. And this is something that's really evolutionarily kind of primed. Like when we hear babies cry, <laughs> when like every like, you know, parent can say like, oh, I can, I can tell the type of cry my child has is indicating that they need this or that. Like there, that's, that there's some actual basis for that. There's basis in like, it's, we're primed to notice distress calls in others. So we know how to help people. There's even evidence that we can sense the distress calls of other species, of other mammalian species. So we're really ingrained to sense when people are getting more distressed by the sound of their voice. And so this becomes like a really cool way that we can look at how people's emotions change because we can look at it at such a fine grained, quick level. And that means we can see like if one person is speaking and then the next person speaks, um, like how are they influencing each other? Like, did that person's arousal kind of go up after hearing what the last person said? And does that mean that they're making them more distressed um, or can they help the other person kind of calm down? And so that's what we can really pick up by looking at this type of research. That's awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. What kind of, of 
findings have you taken away from that? Um, or how are you able to use your research in your clinical practice? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that as of right now in, in clinical practice, um, we're not quite there yet. But I think it does raise the question of like, are people really sensing this kind of in the moment that they're talking to their partners? Like, can do people then kind of immediately respond to the qualities in somebody's voice? And does that kind of then predict sometimes the conversations going a certain way? Um, and so it might well be that when people sometimes uh, have, sometimes we call this negative reciprocity, which is like if one person kind of does something kind of negative toward the other person in the conversations, the other person kind of respond right back in kind. Like if one person criticizes, the other person just criticize them right back. And so it might be that besides the words that people are responding to, people might also be responding to those kind of vocal qualities. And can we, if like, if, if we know that people are really reactive to that, if people can just pick up on that and then they're about to respond in a negative way, can we help them to slow down the interaction, help them understand their emotions? And does that then bring the, that kind of quality in the voice kind of down? Does that kind of regulate that? Um, so they can better be able to communicate. So it's possible that we can eventually use this in treatment as, you know, something that we can really help people become aware of um, to promote that good quality communication. Um, In terms of like what we've found, because I know that was the other question you asked, you know, this is really a really up and coming field of research. Like when I came into this lab, um, it was really um, just just beginning. Um, and I was um, kind of told by my mentor, Dr. Balcom, that um, there's really only a few other labs kind of studying this. Um, but so far across the different labs, we've we've done some investigations, again, looking at this in different types of couples, couples where um, couples who are seeking out therapy and looking at what it looks like before therapy and after therapy, um, couples who were just about to kind of start their relationships and looking at them um, a few years in the future of what they look like in terms of their relationship, in terms of their mental health. Um, I'm just, I just started a study looking at this in long distance relationships, um, couples where um, one person has psych pathology, like a mental health condition, um, couples where there might be instances of intimate partner violence. So we're, we're really starting to look at this in different contexts because we're really trying to understand, like, are there certain types of ways we respond that are adapted maybe in some contexts, but not others. You know, it's, I don't think that, I think that's one thing that we've seen is that it's not necessarily the case that um, expressing emotions is always bad. Actually, in some ways it can be really useful, but maybe it's only for certain types of people it's more useful for. Um, So we're really just starting to dig in to what those different findings are. I'm going to pause you right there. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to continue to hear more about that. Thank you for listening to Ship Talking on 97.9 The Hill. We'll be right back. You're listening to Ship Talking with Sharon Levine. We'll be back with more after this on 97.9 The Hill. And now back to Ship Talking with Sharon Levine. Once again, here's Sharon. 
We are back to Ship Talking on 97.9 The Hill. I am your host, Sharon, joined with me by Danielle, who's been sharing about her her research with us. And um, Danielle, one thing you mentioned a little bit in the last segment that I would just love to hear you talk more about are the emotional dynamics that tend to play out in different types of relationships. You, you named a lot of different types really uh, types of relationships, and I thought that was really interesting in itself. I would love to hear more about what you found when one person suffers from mental illness and how that impacts mm-hmm. the relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is something that we're kind of increasingly um, researching, and it's a really exciting um, area of research uh, because typically when we think about um, psychopathology or like mental illness, we tend to think of it as just a purely individual experience. Um, and so we treat it individually. Um, but of course, like if that person with the disorder is living with a partner, um, then we need to be thinking about how the partner is reacting in that context. Like how are they responding when the person with the disorder is experiencing a lot of distress about caused by something, you know, related to their disorder? Um, are they responding in ways that are helpful? And um, sometimes partners are really well-intentioned, like they really, really want to respond in ways that make the other person feel better. But sometimes that means that they're going to take shortcuts. Sometimes that means that they're going to try and just take them out of that distress as soon as humanly possible. Um, And so that might mean kind of avoiding things. Like we know that when someone has a mental disorder, like if they have social anxiety, they're going to want to avoid social situations. Um, But what that means is that over time, they continue to avoid um, because it feels better just to escape in the moment. Um, But that means that the symptoms kind of keep um, sticking around in the long term. And so sometimes partners, Mm -hmm. they kind of promote these behaviors and it's actually not good. So what happens is if someone gets a treated with an individual therapist and then they go home to a relationship where the partner's kind of actually incidentally kind of encouraging some of these things, it doesn't turn out so great. Um, So we were really interested in looking at whether some of these behaviors that come up from partners when partners are just trying to help take away the person's distress, does that come up partly because they themselves are feeling a lot of intense emotions when they see the other person in distress? So we, um, in a study that um, was recently published by me and and some great co-authors just a few years ago, we were looking at this in a sample of couples where one person had binge eating disorder and really looking to see when they're communicating with their partner um, who doesn't have that disorder, um, basically seeing like how their emotional dynamics um, change and how might that be related to whether the partner is doing some of these kind of what we call accommodation behaviors, accommodating the disorder in unhelpful ways. And what we found was that if the person with the disorder had um, kind of increased kind of emotional arousal, like beyond where their normal emotional, I guess, baseline, kind of where their emotions tend to sit, like if they had increased emotions, as indicated by this emotional arousal in their voice, at one point, in that conversation, if at the next point in the conversation, the partner was also kind of reacting by experiencing more emotions than they typically experience, then that specifically was what predicted whether the partners were engaging some of these less helpful behaviors. So this tells us like, oh, wow, if they're kind of reacting a lot to these emotions when they're communicating, 
that might be, maybe that's why they're responding this way. They're getting distressed from hearing the other person distressed and they just want to take them out of it. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you working on right now? Yeah. So now I'm, I'm, um, looking more, um, at couples where this is a sample of couples who were in one of these interventions like prior to marriage. So these were couples who started out in the study happy and ready to get married. And this was a longitudinal study. So we, um, well, I didn't collect the original data. That was many years ago. Um, but the, the original study team in Germany, they collected, um, led by Dr. Kurt Hallweg, he collected this data from couples over after 25 years, checking in with these couples and seeing like, how are you doing now? Um, and this is, this is still kind of preliminary research. We're still working on this, but we're seeing what we're seeing right now is it looks like that how this cup, these couples had, you know, this 10 minute conversation at the beginning of the study, um, how their emotional arousal kind of changed within the conversation was actually associated with how happy they were in their relationship 25 years later. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> What it seems like to be saying is that if one person is getting a lot more emotionally distressed, like over t- over the course of the conversation, the other person is less happy at that 25 year point. Um, but that there might be some ways that you yourself expressing emotions is good for you, but it might not be as good for the other person. And we're still diving into this because it's a little bit more complicated than that. But that's a little bit of what we're seeing. Um, in terms of looking at this indicator and how it's related to your happiness in the relationship. Awesome. We're going to take a pause right there and we'll meet up with you again in a couple minutes. Thanks for listening to Ship Talking on 97.9 The Hill. You're listening to Ship Talking with Sharon Levine. We'll be back with more after this on 97.9 The Hill. And now back to Ship Talking with Sharon Levine. Once again, here's Sharon. Welcome back to Ship Talking. I'm your host, Sharon, joined by Danielle, who's been sharing about her research on relationships. And I thought for the last couple of minutes, Danielle, you could maybe share with us um, any general takeaways from the research or anything that you've you've learned over this time where you've kind of immersed yourself in these studies that you could share with our listeners listeners maybe who are are thinking about ways to be more present in their relationships or or just want to start thinking about their relationships more i know that's kind of a a broad question but anything you could share with us (laughs) yeah i i think that one thing that i've definitely learned from this research is that it's not just simple. It's not a simple answer of like, there's a one way to live a relationship. And that's just all you have to do is just follow that one pathway. And from a research perspective, that makes it murky, because it means you're trying to understand, okay, so in what situation does this work? And the other situations that might work. So as a researcher, it can be um, complicated. And I like that personally. Um, But I think as a just general person living a relationship out in the world, I think it can also be a little bit freeing because it means you're not constrained to like, well, I have to be like this. It has to mean though that you trust how it feels for you because 
one thing we know is that if one person or both person's needs are not being met, then that's not going to work. Um, and so you can it can work because you're both similar and so you both do similar things and that might really work for you. Um, but it also is completely fine um, if you both have very different needs in our relationship. But then you just have to figure out, well, then how do we get those needs met considering that I'm very different from you? So it's not necessarily the case that you know, opposites always work out. Um, it's also not the case that if you marry a clone of yourself, that that's going to be perfect. It really means you have to figure out like, okay, let's sit down and talk about how we get this done. So that does mean that communication, clear communication is essential and figuring out how do we make sure that we're respecting each other. Um, we know that that's important, but how it actually specifically looks can look really different depending on the person, which I think is just something that's really exciting and interesting about relationships overall. Danielle, thank you so much for talking to us. I could listen to you talk for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Awesome. Well, if you like our show, please let us know. We have a new email set up. I'd love to hear your thoughts, your questions, or your story ideas. Please send them to shiptalking at wchl.com. Thank you again, Danielle, for joining us. And thank you, Sarah. <laughs> thanks for listening to us. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Ship Talking with Sharon Levine on 97.9 The Hill. For more episodes, visit the on-demand page of our website, chapelboro.com. 